Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well. Hard to believe we are already into the first full week of June. And I also find it hard to believe that tomorrow will mark the halfway point of the first full week of June. But nonetheless, I'm glad to be back on the air with you guys. And I must say that I'm um, very pleased with... um, the level of uh, interest that all of you have uh, taken with this uh, current uh, podcast uh, book topic series. And I know I've said that before with other uh, book uh, series we've done. And I guess I say that because, um, you know, with all that's been going on in the world lately and and all the um, negativity there might be out there, not trying to get political or anything, but with all the negativity and sometimes the sadness that that we hear about in the news, I'm I do certainly hope that uh, my presence has been more of a um, more of a uh, positive uh, influence. Yes, I do know that history has not always been pretty. On the other hand, even when history has not always been pretty, I would certainly hope that all of us would, you know, do everything there was, or do everything that there is to our power to, you know, learn from those mistakes so that we don't um, make the same mistakes that happened in the past and repeat them going forward in the present and care, and let them um, continue to go in the wrong direction in the future. So in other words, uh, whenever I go to uh, Colonial Williamsburg, and how ironic that my wife and I were there um, this past Saturday, uh, once again, no matter how many times we've been to Williamsburg, we've always learned something new, and I'm always being reminded of what the interpreters or um, docents or reenactors um, tell us, is that no matter um, what the topic of discussion may be or what we're you know learning about per the particular uh, time frame uh, that, a, that a particular group of um, actors and actresses are discussing their main focal point is that you know we need to learn from the past and understand why certain things happened in the past the way they did and going forward how we can better understand the past so that so that uh, the past will never be forgotten going forward in the present and into uh, the future so that future generations not only can learn from the past, but have a better understanding of why the history itself is important. Uh, So in other words, you know, yes, there are things that we don't have to like. But sometimes I have to wonder, you know, when we want to question things, how far do we go with wanting to change it all to where we just decide not to want to learn about it anymore? And again, I'm not trying to get political and all that, but... uh, but those are the things that we have to be reminded of, especially in this day and age, um, where people can get information a lot faster. But then we have to ask ourselves, do people really sit down to take the time and understand why a particular event happened the way it did, when it did, and understand going forward what we as a society can do to be um, not only, I don't know if appreciative is the right word, depending on the matter, but what we as a society can do going forward so that uh, future generations understand why this event happened 
and if it was for better or for worse, what can be uh, learned from it so that um, so that the past isn't forgotten. So it's just one of those constant um, battles that we are facing, but it's up to us uh, to make the right decision, and so therefore, or decisions, I should say, but uh, therefore I do hope that uh, my um, podcasts, regardless of book topic discussion, have been able to be uh, somewhat of a good uh, positive influence in the midst of uh, so much negativity that we um, come into uh, contact with, whether it's through news or just other outlets on a daily basis. And again, this is not political. It's just um, it's just what I um, see each day. And then I have to think to myself, you know, thank goodness that uh, I've got many people whom enjoy listening to my podcasts. Because without you all, I don't know where um, how far I could have gotten with uh, podcasting up to this point in, in the uh, three years uh, that I've been doing it. I mean, when I first started three years ago, I never thought I would be just shy of 51,500 plays. But I have, uh, but I have been able to uh, garner some uh, great audiences, and thanks to you all, my listeners, uh, my fellow listeners who've been with me for some time, uh, continue to be on this journey because this is a journey where you're going to be, you know, learning things. You're going to um, learn more about stuff that you didn't know before, and the best part is you can uh, share that information with others who would like to come on to uh, my site and listen to my podcast. So, so therefore, uh, thanks to all of you for making this happen. But anyways, we've got a lot of uh, important work ahead of us. We are in uh, part two of two in uh, this uh, series with um, the Indian, um, not the Indian resistance movement, I should say, but we are in part two of two with... Um, the following of um, the United States invades Ohio, because <laughs> the other day we, it was part one of the uh, United States invades Ohio, but we are now into part two of two with the United States invading Ohio, and what we're going to learn about in this uh, podcast um, segment episode, uh, basically we're going to learn about uh, the journey that General Arthur St. Clair and his uh, troops embark on. And this is a journey that's going to have lots of, um, it's not going to be a smooth journey, I can promise you that much. It's going to be a journey that's going to make us uh, scratch our heads. It's going to make us ask lots of questions, maybe one of them as to why did this journey or mission even go about when so many other things uh, did not add up right. You know, it's one thing to embark on a mission, but you have to have all the other pieces put into place. And we're also going to learn about um, how some corruption was going on uh, in the lead-up to this um, mission. Yes, folks, believe it or not, there was uh, corruption in the early days of the Republic's existence. But as much as I hate to say it, uh, corruption has been around since the beginning of time. But in the early days of civilization, we didn't have breaking news like we have today. So if, if people learned about corruption, probably by the time they learned it, the event had already happened, and um, who's to know if those whom had participated in the uh, corruptive act were even still living? So anyways, uh, let's be prepared for our first uh, leadoff question to part two of two of the United States invades Ohio. To the victory with no name, the Native American defeat of the First American Army by Colin G. Calloway. What action did General uh, St. Clair 
engage in come August 1st of 1791. He sent Lieutenant Colonel James Wilkinson and 500 troops on a second raid into the Wabash Valley. So some of us are thinking, okay, why are we sending um, more uh, forces into the Wabash Valley? Well, it seemed like we had success uh, the first go-around with uh, Brigadier General Charles Scott. So by sending another team into the Wabash Valley, we're um, hoping that we can uh, crush uh, further Indian resistance. So nonetheless, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Wilkinson and his uh, 500-man troop force went into the Wabash where they attacked and burned multiple villages up to three miles along the Eel River at El Angail. Three miles. That's a pretty uh, impressive and yet dangerous attack. I don't know how many homes were destroyed, but if there are multiple villages along the river, it might be fair to say that no home in the villages was spared. The attack resulted in the deaths of six men and two um, Indian women. So I should say six men and two Indian women, including a child. I know all that doesn't sound right, but we have to remind ourselves, folks, that atrocities between Indians and Europeans over land was nothing out of the blue. It was a uh, rampant um, issue. So not only do we have the deaths of six men, two women, and an um, Indian child, so that's sadly, that's nine fatalities there. How about 38 prisoners? 38 Indian prisoners were taken. August 2nd saw Lieutenant Colonel James Wilkinson's troops burn cornfields nearby uh, Kickapoo villages, only in the end for his forces to lose their focus. How did their forces, how did his forces lose their focus? Were, were they just out of line to the point where they were burning everything that was in front of them? It turns out that was not the case. Once they had completed their mission around the, um, the Eel River, m burning multiple villages to burning cornfields nearby Kickapoo villages, they, um, the, the troops, believe it or not, folks, uh, the 500 troops that uh, Wilkinson had, they uh, were uh, mounted troops. And what I mean by that is that they uh, moved by horse. Okay, so now we're kind of going in the right direction. You know, when you move by horse, you can get from point A to point B a lot faster than, say, by um, doing a traditional march. But it would be fair to say that even when you did have horses, depending on the weather, and if the weather was crappy... That doesn't mean you're going to get from point A to point B a lot faster compared to a traditional march. So, yes, um, as for the uh, men under uh, Lieutenant Colonel Wilkinson's command, they lost their focus navigating through swamps and prairies. I can't imagine navigating through a swamp. I mean, it's one thing to get yourself into water, but if you get stuck... Um, you know, good luck trying to get out. I mean, you might have to have two people uh, get a hold of your hands just to get you out. But for all we know, those two individuals helping the guy that's stuck in the swamp might just fall into the swamp themselves. And not only fall into the swamp, but come into contact with, um, with critters like mosquitoes, 
or just other critters that could um, present a danger to you. So, yes, uh, these uh, men have lost their um, focus navigating through swamps and prairies. And it's one thing to have the horses, but their horses have become have become unfit to where they are now not up for further exploring. So, Lieutenant Colonel Wilkinson, his mission has technically now been somewhat cut short, even though he's uh, achieved uh, some good victories. But the mission could have gone could have gotten probably a lot further had his uh, troops not lost their focus, and along with having uh, better fit horses. Now, uh, despite Congress's appointing General Richard Butler as Arthur St. Clair's uh, second-in-command to lining up officers whom recruited soldiers per region assigned, were preparations for the upcoming campaign strong? I'm going to tell you right now, folks, um, the answer is no. And there, there are reasons why. So we better find out why that, that's the case. Uh, but for starters, the preparations leading up to the fall campaign were plagued, really, in a sense, by two two primary factors, uh, delay and corruption. Of course, when I think of delay, I, it could be uh, weather-related, um, but it's not always the weather. But let's find out with regards to the delay piece. Provisions, there was a provisions contract uh, designated for um Anthony St. Clair's campaign uh, that was uh, made in October of 1790, the same month that General Josiah Harmer's um, mission to Kekionga turned out, pardon me, to be a, a debacle onto itself that resulted in the in around uh, close to 260 deaths of American troops. So, what do you know? In the same month. A uh, provisions contract is designated for Anthony St. Clair's um, campaign for the following year. So this would have been obviously late October, uh, just not long after um, Josiah Harmer's uh, debacle uh, reached uh, Washington. So for the provisions contract designated for St. Clair's campaign, the contract was made in October of 1790 by Theodosius Fowler whom was a New York merchant. And as for uh, Mr. Fowler, he transferred the contract to Mr. William Dewar. Remember uh, Mr. William Dewar, who was Alexander Hamilton's assistant treasury secretary? Mr. William Dewar is also a land speculator. He's part of the uh, Skiato Company or Skiato Company. He and um, Manasseh Cutler um, worked pretty much uh, went about um, under, um, they pretty much uh, constructed one of the uh, biggest uh, government dealings of the day, and they pretty much orchestrated it when Congress was not in session. So anyways, as for uh, Mr. Dewar, William Dewar, I should say, he receives the contract, and come January of 1791, this is where... Um, the corruption starts to come into play, or what we might think of as scandalous activity. Mr. Dewar states later that he served, um, well, Mr. Fowler, rather I should say, stated later that he served as Dewar's agent. After stepping down from the Assistant Treasury Secretary post, William Dewar entered into um, 
careers of contracting and speculating. And, you know, land speculators invest money, which is a good thing, but land speculators, as we've learned, don't always strike it rich. It might be fair to say that land speculators are often in the red more so than they are in the green. Why do I say red and green, folks? Well, in the red, we're talking deficit. Green would be surplus. So if you're in the red, you're in debt. And it would be fair to say that if you're in the green, you are um, you might as well have good credit. You're paying your bills on time. You're paying the creditors back. Well, William Dewar is like many other land speculators in that they are uh, borrowing far more money than they are paying um, existing all existing outstanding debts. So for Mr. William Dewar, this is where he, his scandalous activity comes into play. The government gives him cash bonuses. Okay, and here we are uh, trying to uh, finance another upcoming campaign to um, prevail over the Indians in the Northwest Territory, and all of a sudden we're giving a kickback to a former government employee who's now uh, into land speculating. Well, this cash bonus, folks, came out to $75,000. So the government gives William Dewar $75,000 by allowing him to ward off some of his creditors whom were in pursuit of collecting outstanding debts. So with that $75,000, William Dewar gave $10,000 of that money to War Secretary Henry Knox, which led to both men forming an undisclosed partnership involving land speculating in present-day Maine. Now remember, folks, Maine was originally part of what state? Massachusetts. Maine doesn't become its own state until 1820. So we've got almost another 30 years, folks, before Maine will uh, be admitted into the Union as its own separate state. But in the meantime, uh, War Secretary Henry Knox and former Assistant Treasury Secretary William Dewar, we would think of today, are involved in scandalous activity uh, where they have formed an undisclosed partnership using government funds that will go about um, go about um, dealings with um, land speculating in uh, present day Maine, and they are doing this all. They are doing this because they feel that it takes um, first. Uh, they believe that this takes uh, first precedent over um, the army's needs, and to me, that's just not right. But I hate to say this, folks, isn't it fair to say that scandalous activity has been going on since the beginning of time where government-funded uh, money has been used for something that it didn't need to be used for when it should have been used for something else that was far more relevant? Perhaps so. I would say yes, indeed. Now, the sec Secretary of War, being that of Henry Knox, what would have been his duties at this time, given with the mission at hand? Well, the Secretary of War would have been responsible for handling uh, such things as clothing purchases, whereas a quartermaster dealt with contracts and inspection back in Philadelphia. How about this also would have included to purchasing boats and horses, coordinating production of all artillery shells in Pittsburgh, which is the furthest uh, westernmost um, town in 1791, 
in the uh, 13 uh, United uh, in the 13 states. But of course, even in 1791, two new states are admitted to the Union, uh, being um, I want to say uh, Vermont and uh, Tennessee are the two states that get uh, admitted into the Union. And then uh, Kentucky joins uh, not long after. But uh, during George Washington's eight years as president, uh, three states were admitted into the Union, uh, Vermont, Tennessee, and Kentucky. So, And, of course, prior to those states being admitted, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was the furthest uh, westernmost um, town in, um, in the newly established United States. Its population wasn't even over a thousand. It was just around between four hundred and five hundred. So, not only um, is the uh, quartermaster having to coordinate production of all artillery shells in Pittsburgh, but all of this material, folks, was to be sent downriver to Fort Washington in southern Ohio. Talk about logistics, folks. Talk about logistics that are going to pose a real significant challenge. Items from clothing to canteens were slow in arriving to Fort Pitt in uh, Pittsburgh, PA. Knapsacks arrived into Fort Pitt split in half uh, to leaking status. Shoes provided by William Dewar. Wow, I'm surprised he, you know, he used uh, money wisely given that he was given $75,000 by the government just to uh, ward off uh, creditors whom were on his case. And yet he still had the money to... Um, invest in what he thought were quality shoes when in fact they weren't for one for one the majority of these shoes ended up being very small and they split this isn't going to be good for soldiers you think about it most soldiers are going to be lucky if they get one pair of shoes but if the pair of shoes they receive come to them as being small and split how do you expect them to last for a couple of months, or let alone just a week, a few weeks, they're not going to be able to. And just after a couple of days of um, being worn, um, well, the shoes became split, really, in a sense, just after a couple of days of being worn. So that's your answer right there, folks. So we've got uh, definitely some red flags here with logistics. Uh, the clothing, it turned out to be an inferior quality. As for the tents that were brought over, they were uh, considered to be lightweight. Well, I don't see anything wrong with a lightweight tent, but but that we also have uh, problems here with uh, the quality of the tent. If the tent is lightweight, folks, would you be using a lightweight tent during in the summertime or in the uh, or between fall and winter? A lightweight tent you would use during the summer. You would need a much heavier weight tent in the wintertime because think about the conditions you could be in. If it's snowing, uh, the tent itself, if it's heavier weight, it's going to be sturdier and it will also prevent um, moisture from the ground uh, coming inside your tent and, you know, soaking it all up. So in other words, you know, just because you have a tent, it doesn't mean that the tent that you have is going to be good for all four seasons. So... Tents uh, here are lightweight, meaning that they are better suited for summer usage, but not in the fall season. Firearms is another thing, folks. Poor quality. And some of these firearms are unfit for use. I tell you, folks, the logistics here is becoming a nightmare. One issue after another. 
did General Arthur St. Clair have other problems to contend with even after contractors and quartermaster had arrived into Fort Washington? Uh, sad to say, folks, but yes, he did have other problems to contend with, most notably involving orders and strategies requiring establishment of supply route from Fort Washington to uh, the Miami towns in and around Kekionga, being all the way up in northeast Indiana, including stations of manned posts at different sections along the route. So, you know, it's one thing to transport the goods by uh, supply wagons. But it's but if you're moving with the supply wagon with these uh, wagons or supply wagons with all these supplies, don't you feel like you need to have troops scattered at different posts uh, to serve as lookouts so that Indians don't catch you by surprise and attack you via guerrilla style to where not only do you have 15 people mowed down or, or you know, five people mowed down but, say, 10 severely wounded to where nobody can protect the supply wagons, and now all of the um, supplies fall into enemy hands. So the bottom line is we need to have, um, we need to have uh, security at various posts uh, along, uh, along the trails, and we also need to know how are we going to get to... Um, say, the Ohio River in Pittsburgh, how are we going to move these goods by water so that they will eventually get to their ultimate destination? Remember, folks, you know, we don't have airplanes. We don't have, um, we don't have anything like UPS or FedEx to ship overnight and say, hey, this is where we're going to send it to this uh, uh, facility where you guys can make your way up uh, within a matter of a couple of days. It'll be waiting for you in a secure storage facility. We're not anywhere close to that kind of uh, service or services. So logistics right now is um, it's not in a good place, or I should say it's really stuck between a rock and a hard place. The U.S. Army was regularly delayed with its progress as supply wagons struggled to arrive on time. Captain Samuel Newman he reported various problems, folks, involving discipline, drink, or I should say drunkenness, to camp followers. He left Philadelphia in late July 1791 with 83 men and four women, but yet dealt with um, 10 men whom were already uh, confined based upon desertion. Not a great way to start things. And other crimes... In early, of, early August 1791, um, Captain Newman had to go as far as dismissing a Mrs. Graham, whom brought canteens of rum to men despite repeatedly being told to refrain from improper conduct. August 15th, Captain Newman found Sergeant Williams to have been drunk, an officer drunk, folks. Officers are supposed to be setting good examples for for those soldiers below. Well, I hate to say this, folks, but I have bad news to report in that we've got officers whom are not um, living up to their standards. We have officers whom are not setting good examples. And, you know, it's almost like in today's time. We have people of, you know, of high-ranking status in their, in their uh, jobs, and we would think that, okay, those people 
would serve as good role models, but sometimes we come to learn that even CEOs don't always set good examples for those below them. So here we have an example of a sergeant. Yes, he may not be a colonel or a general, but a sergeant to have been drunk while on duty. Not just duty, but guard duty. And because of his actions, um, Captain Newman forced um, Sergeant Williams, whom was drunk while on guard duty, to be placed under arrest and be sent to Fort Pitt where he would stand trial for public drunkenness. And to think ten years earlier, there was a siege of Yorktown, and now we're seeing this. Is this the kind of news George Washington would want to hear, being that he is commander-in-chief? No. Would this have been the kind of behavior he would have tolerated as the commanding officer of the Continental Army? Absolutely not. Many of you are probably beginning to wonder, why isn't George Washington out there in uniform commanding this mission? Well, I think it would be an awful lot to ask, a, uh, ask the President of the United States to be leading to leading an army out into action. And who's not to say that if he did, he might even come home alive himself, knowing that Indians are scattered just about anywhere in the woods, ready to launch just about any kind of guerrilla offensive, no matter, regardless of size. And if you take out George Washington, if you're an Indian and you take out Washington, you talk about putting the country in, in, um, in a great state of um, disarray. Not that John Adams is a bad guy in terms of vice president, but you talk about um, there is no such thing as um, presidential succession or um, in, the, in the event of a crisis. Uh, did many officers under uh, General uh, Anthony St. Clair's command feel confident about the mission going forward? No. For starters, uh, regulars and militiamen from every unit present were not solid, meaning they lacked informal training, including discipline. The majority of soldiers had never even experienced actual combat, or I should say warfare combat. Secondly, officers from General Charles Scott to Lieutenant Colonel James Wilkinson, who have been so far the, the, mo the most successful officers with their missions that they have performed, they expressed hesitancy given they had no confidence in General St. Clair's leadership, largely due to his attitude towards the Kentuckians whom retaliated against Indian raids. In other words, why is it that General Anthony, General uh, Arthur St. Clair, why is it that he does not like Kentuckians retaliating? Is it because he doesn't want to see the, fi the fire get fueled anymore, perhaps? But is it because he has a personal vendetta? Maybe. But to have this kind of um, self-centeredness, it's not a good thing. General Scott and the uh, Kentucky Board of War went as far as having to uh, draft a thousand men just to serve under General Arthur St. Clair. But even as the good intentions were, those men drafted did not fare any better. So no matter what incentives were being put into place, folks, I'm just beginning to feel like that no matter how the no matter what the intentions are, this is something that should not have been uh, conduct should not have been carried out going forward. This is something that is uh, lacking in true uh, fundamental leadership. Hang tight for just one moment. I'll be right back.
Well, you know, General Arthur St. Clair himself, folks, he has even expressed doubts himself about going forward with this campaign. But he also knows just how desperate President Washington and War Secretary Henry Knox are behind this upcoming campaign for the fall of 1791, considering what happened the year before at Kekiongo with the debacle under um, the previous off- commanding officer of General uh, Brigadier General uh, Josiah Harmer. So Washington and Knox are very desperate for a victory. But yet, even the most um, experienced of men like George Washington, given that he served in the French and Indian War to being commander of the Continental Army, what Washington and, and War Secretary Henry Knox will, um, fail, are going to fail to realize is that the Indians aren't as dumb as the majority of the, um, as the, majority of the uh, government thinks they are. In other words, they think that, okay, we've got some of the best men that can put down any Indian resistance or uprising at any given time or day, at any given time of the day. But what they don't realize is that the Indians still rely upon tactics that are far more superior than, say, linear warfare or traditional European styles, a.k.a. The tricks that are up the Indian sleeves are the guerrilla tactics, irregular style. Would weather and terrain have a negative impact for the fall military campaign of 1791? Yes, uh, progress as a whole came at a very at very small intervals, where soldiers, including a handful of artillery pieces, pulled by ox teams, advanced just a couple of miles per day. Now, start, what we're going to talk about here next, folks, is a timeline. A timeline that's going to have lots of twists and turns. This timeline is going to tell us more about, more about um, the struggles of this um, American army. So let's start with September 15th of 1791. On September 15th of 1791, the roads got very muddy, where supply carts transporting the luggage, being blankets couldn't keep up with soldiers whom were already um, one or two steps ahead of the supply wagons. And because the supply um, wagon carts could not keep up with the soldiers, and because the roads got muddy, folks, what happened? The soldiers, folks, were forced to sleep in the woods on wet ground without access to any proper provisions. Can you imagine, folks? Knowing that you are ahead of the supply wagons, you don't have a telephone to call up the guy who's in charge of the logistics here to say, hey, what? why is there a delay? When is the ETA of arrival going to be? Don't they know where we're at? No, we don't have that kind of technology, folks. So now these soldiers are going to have to be forced to sleep on the ground. And for all we know, we don't know what they could even be exposed to, but it's not a pretty uh, picture. Let's forward nine days after, September 24th, 1791. Well, it rained all day to where tents, beds, and clothes got badly soaked, drenched. September 27th, three days later, Indians stole multiple horses, 
General Arthur St. Clair gave Major General Richard Butler orders to march the army north from Fort Hamilton, where Butler was to advance army into two columns on two identical roads, 250 yards apart. This strategy was to ensure the formation of battle lines in the event of an attack, a.k.a. an Indian attack. St. Clair returned to Fort Washington where he oversaw the Kentucky militia units get raised. He was absent from the Army until October 8th. Couldn't St. Clair have had somebody else oversee all this? I think so. Maybe his intentions were, um, were decent, but given that he's going to be gone for not two weeks, but just shy of two weeks, uh, to me, um, this is going to cause a lot of, um, cause a lot of, uh, conflict. October 1st of 1791, Indians killed one soldier to capturing, capturing another, including the seizure of six horses just two miles from camp. October 3rd, a sergeant and 25 men deserted in the night. They left. They didn't want to partake in this um, campaign. The day after, October 4th, troops crossed the Great Miami River with water up to their waists. It's a miracle that none of them drowned. Because you, you do have to wonder if any of these men whom partook in this mission even had any kind of swimming experience. Because you never know what the currents underneath uh, the surface uh, what they're capable of doing in terms of um, dragging people away from the uh, center and forcing them um, into the opposite direction to where they could be sucked underwater and not be able to uh, come back up for um, air. So, yes, on October 4th, troops crossed the uh, Great Miami River with water up to their waists and were only able to march two miles further as a result of having to cut the roads. Between October 6th and 7th, the army moved forward five miles per both days. October 8th, that's when St. Clair returns, but he returns only to chastise Major General Benjamin Butler's marching tactics, resulting in a permanent alienation of the second officer in command. I hate to say this, but I think Arthur St. Clair, or uh, yes, General Arthur St. Clair did burn a bridge here may not have liked what um, Butler was doing, but hey, you know what? What else is Butler to do? It just makes no sense to me. Now, between October 10th and the 12th of 1791, 17 and a half miles are covered, so that's between five and six miles a day within a three-day span, only for the Army to encounter old Indian camps to Indian tracks, including a vacated Indian cabin. October 12th, the weather becomes, became so cold, folks, that by uh, nightfall, soldiers awoke to find ice on their water containers. Think about it, folks. There's no such thing as proper ventilation. I mean, you know, we don't have, um, we don't have uh, heating units. So the only thing that's going to really keep you warm is to um, start a fire, you know, campfire, and to... Um, into um, you know move your hands around for uh, to get warmth and all, but you know to think here you are waking up in the middle of the night only to uh, find that your um, water containers are um, are covered with ice. 
And I'm sure many of these men had never even witnessed this before, but it is kind of a rude awakening of sorts. Now, between October 13th and the 17th, time was spent locating um, for a viable site for constructing the fort to finding exact spot only to be short on overall uh, tool supplies. October 17th, four men from the 1st Regiment uh, deserted the army. October 20th, tensions greatly... um, Tensions become greatly um, severe. They uh, mounted from within where officers were at odds with each other. Regulars uh, insulted militiamen. Nobody is happy. If nobody's happy, then how in the world... This isn't about singing Kumbaya, folks, but if we don't have anybody who's happy, then how is there going to be any kind of structure, relevant structure, that can exist? It just simply can't exist if people are not on the same page, or if there's no um, proper discipline, proper um, structure for uh, soldiers to go by, and it doesn't make things better when you have an officer being a sergeant whom was found to be drunk while uh, performing guard duty. So when you have breakdown in leadership, then then I don't see how in the world that even the soldiers below serving under the officers would even have respect for officers as a whole. It's a double-edged sword, but in this case, it's not a pretty one. And once again, hard to believe that 10 years earlier that we had um, that the British had surrendered at Yorktown, knowing that they that the mightiest empire in the world had lost to a bunch of ragtag um, men whom, as General Lord, Char- Lord Charles Cornwallis described as being peasants with pitchforks. <laughs> well, the Indians might as well see the um, soldiers of this makeshift U.S. Army, not so much as peasants with pitchforks, but really as um, fake fighters. In other words, they aren't the real thing. They may claim to be skilled marksmen, but they have no idea what they're going up against because they're going into uncharted territory where they are, where eventually uh, the U.S., this... um, American army is going to be in for a rude awakening because of uh, because of the way they were not trained to fight. So um, so yes, on October twenty second, uh, twenty um, men deserted deserted during the night, with more whom followed earlier in the day. In October twenty third, two artillery men got sentenced to death for shooting another uh, soldier to threatening an officer. Where do you draw the line? Yes, it might not have been pleasant to know that two soldiers had to be executed, but there had to be some message sent. But I'm wondering if this message got sent a little too late. October 24, 1791, General St. Clair became very ill to where he had to be transported by wagon. Soldiers saw many old and new Indian campsites. Folks, the Indians know they're not just one step ahead. I think the Indians are five steps ahead at best. They are coming up with all kinds of tactics to put this uh, American army on pins and needles. October 25th, the rain is so tense to where the army was required to remain in camp while waiting for provisions. 
it's not for another three days until the 28th that 74 horses loaded with flour up to 12,000 pounds finally arrived. But even with these provisions, folks, the army could only see up to four days of provisions. And after that, they're going to need a whole other set of um, food provisions. And if that's not bad enough, folks, even when they got these provisions, the weather consists of hail and snow. It just seems like one nightmare, one disaster after another. And does the government really think they can pull this off? I don't think they can. I hate to sound pessimistic, but I just don't see how in the world um, that all of this is going to uh, be a success. October 30th, the Army advanced seven miles, but horses were too weak. Many tents were abandoned as weather conditions became all more unstable. A severe storm with strong winds brought tree limbs down. This created further panic amongst a handful of the soldiers. November 2nd, 1791, the Army marched eight miles and also encamped as it snowed all day. And finally, November 3rd, the soldiers had established a camp on an area of high ground, whereas the militia got stationed 300 yards away across the creek in the upper Wabash. Militiamen were all fit into a tight quarter, or rather I should say they were all fit into tight quarters. No defensive fortifications are made, folks. That's not good. I mean, on one hand, I would imagine that pretty much all of these men are, are exhausted. I would be too, but the fact that nobody has taken the time or is going to take the time to uh, come up with some basic fortifications, you're just creating yourself or you're just making yourself all the more uh, visible and becoming an even more uh, vulnerable sitting duck. So let's keep in mind, folks, the regulars are in one position, or in one section, but 300 yards away um, in the upper Wabash are your militiamen. Now, just out of curiosity, do you all think that there were any Indians whom actually joined this uh, army of St. Clair's on the expedition? I was surprised to learn this, folks, but the answer is yes, and I'm sure many of you all are wondering how could that be? Shouldn't this be about the army fighting the Indians? Why would the Indians want to be on the side of the army? Well, how about this question? What Indian chief, including a handful of tribal members, um, served as scouts for um, General Arthur St. Clair's army? The Indian chief's name is Piomingo, P-I-O-M-I-N-G-O, Piomingo. He was a Chickasaw chief. And when I think of the Chickasaws, I usually think of them uh, to the southeast with other uh, tribes as the Cher like the Cherokees, the Creeks, and the Choctaw nations. But the Chickasaws um, under uh, Piamingo, under Piamingo's uh, leadership, I should say, Piamingo was responsible for bringing the Chickasaw tribe together and helping make peace with the United States government. And um, by bringing uh, the Chickasaws um, together and making peace with the U.S. government, this the treaty that was signed, uh, that was um, the Treaty of Hopewell, 
That treaty ended years of uh, participation in the Revolutionary War for Native Americans whom uh, befriended the British, and the treaty helped secure the Chickasaw boundaries, including protection by U.S. militia. Of course, you know, that's great that there was a treaty, and it was actually the first uh, treaty to take place in the new United States government between Indian nations and uh, government officials. But many of us have to wonder, okay, um, yes, it was great that there was that first treaty, but, you know, I wonder how long that lasted. So, yes, that that treaty not only involved the Chickasaws, but it also included the uh, Choctaws and, um, and the Creek nations as well. Now, uh, despite the large presence of uh, warning signs, such as Indians killing to capturing an occasional soldier, General St. Clair did not bother to think for one minute that his army was being watched, monitored, or stalked by scouts from a greater force. Indians, folks. They're not just um, laying traps in random places like old and new uh, campsites, but they are constantly watching monitoring. They're sent, they, they've got scouting parties, folks, uh, probably comprised of 20 people at most, maybe 25 or 30. But, the, but even if it's between 20 and 30, they're not all in one group. They've got them scattered out into teams of 10 in all different areas, uh, to the north, to the south, east, west, in a wooded forest. But the bottom line is they are um, doing everything there is to their ability to set up traps to um, to harass this army because they know where the army wants to go. They want they know that the army wants Kekianga. That's the prized um, the prized possession. But in order to prevent them from getting all the way into northeast Indiana, the Indians present day northeast Indiana, the Indians have to uh, come up with other um, tactics to slow down any would be um, progress. Progress has come uh, quite challenging based upon the timeline that I've uh, provided to you all. But I think that the progress alone, whatever progress this army, this so-called American army has made, whatever progress they've made, it's not going to be the the progress of uh, promised land stuff. Did General St. Clair's army, including St. Clair himself and the officers under his command, know exactly where they all were once coming to a complete halt on November 3rd of 1791? The answer is no. However, the officers, along with St. Clair, were all convinced that they had crossed over the hilltop centered between the Miami and St. Mary's rivers, resulting in entering the St. Mary's uh, side. We'll see if that's true. Uh, The night of November 3rd, uh, guardsmen on duty reported to officers spotting Indians uh, moving around nearby in large numbers. Okay, these are the scouting and the raiding parties. Major General Benjamin Butler sent scouting party of 20 men under Captain Jacob Slough's uh, command. Captain Slough reported uh, large Indian numbers to Major General Butler but Butler never reported Slough's findings to St. Clair. Talk about a breakdown in communication right there, folks. But you know what? I guess it would have been easy for uh, Captain Slough to take uh, Benjamin Butler's words that, oh, I'll report this to St. Clair. You have nothing to worry about. Well, it's like that old saying, 
don't assume anything. Just because you tell something to someone and it's important information, don't always assume that the person above you whom you've related to is going to relay it. Sometimes you might be the one that has to go the extra mile and say, uh, just an FYI, hey, uh, be on the lookout uh, for some information that's coming your way. I've already notified the officer, but in case he or she doesn't, well, in this case, it's going to be a he, because there were no such things as female uh, army officers in 1791. We can't assume that sometimes your superior commanding officer is going to relay the information right away to the head honcho. Yes, there might be a chain of command, and yes, it might not be good to go behind the officer's back, but to me, this is a crisis. This is a crisis that that the United States Army is walking into, into uncharted waters. It's a crisis that um, that's only going to get worse by the day, and it's just a matter of time before the Indians uh, unleash their fury to where uh, this U.S. Army might not even um, survive after, uh, say, after one day of, um, of brutal attack. I don't know why I say this, folks, but we have to remember when guerrilla-style attacks occur, they don't last for, sure, they could last for more than a day, but usually when guerrilla-style attacks occur, they're going to last maybe one day at the most. It may not be for five and six hours, but they're going to last long enough to wear down a larger um, unit, in this case, an army that, you know, started off strong with, say, 1,400 men, but with all these desertions, I'm thinking now that the population is probably um, of this army or the numbers of the army are not even anywhere close to a thousand. General Anthony General Arthur St. Clair was already well aware that he was stationed at an area where Indians often came and went, and he knew that he was roughly 15 miles away from Miami towns. He knew that Indian scouts had observed Army's encampment area, but yet he he remained complacent. In other words, he didn't expect an attack from the enemy. He was just going to sit back and assume that, well, we have nothing to worry about. They probably aren't going to attack for a couple more days, so we still have some time on our side. <laughs> Wishful thinking. General St. Clair was stationed all... He came to the realization now that he was not stationed along the St. Mary's River, folks. He was stationed instead at the Wabash River, not St. Mary's, as originally presumed. Kekiyongo was still a good ways out, folks, 44 miles. But as for the Indian Army, they're only two and a half miles away. Who has the upper hand, folks? The Indians. Who's... um? Who's up a creek? The American Army. And as for Kekiyanga, do you really think they're going to be able to make it to Kekiyanga, given that it's 44 miles away? Nope. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, folks, in this uh, podcast uh, topic episode. We have finished uh, part two of two of the United to the United States invading Ohio in in the uh, series, the victory with no name. Now, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk about the actual battle this actual battle with no name. Well, uh, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all, and I look forward to uh, sharing with you all about this actual battle.
that's going to unravel. And when we um, are back on the air again next, I think we're going to uh, be very, very surprised at the findings, or I should say the end results. Why do I say that? Because, yes, you know, yes, we have a, um, a big objective in trying to get um, north, in, in trying to get um, land in the Northwest Territory, but the land isn't going to be handed to us. Yes, we're going to have to go to war for it, but just because we go to war, that doesn't mean we're going to win. And what we're going to be um, dealt with is we're going to be dealt with a lot of harsh reminders. I, I know I shouldn't be giving giving you all this information now, but but based upon what we've learned in this uh, podcast segment and the the journey that it's taken the army, I just don't feel that the army is very well equipped for what lies in store. And maybe um, this could serve as a as a I hate to say it, it could serve as a rude awakening. It could serve as some kind of an awakening to realize that, hey, look, if if the United States is going to be a prosperous nation, then the military is going to have to adapt to uh, better strategies. Well, again, thank you for your time as always. And uh, wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. And thank you again for being such ardent listeners. Without you guys, I don't know where I would be. But I want to say thank you again for um, continuously listening to my podcast, uh, Book Topics. I will uh, continue to do everything that there is in my power to make sure that I um, give you all the best stories that there are uh, when I'm on the air. Uh, and yes, you know, we still have to constantly remind ourselves that uh, even if we are big history buffs like myself, like I myself, we still have to be reminded that yes, history has not always been pretty. But we still have an obligation to do whatever it takes to learn from the past and try to um, teach it in a way so that future generations can better understand the past so that it's not forgotten, but that um, we can serve as um, as good stewards uh, going forward, uh, even in a world uh, that we live in. And not to sound political, folks, but we just have to... Um, it's up to us, but it's also up to us to ensure that we do everything we can to preserve history, even if it's not something that, even if it's not something that uh, may have been a pleasant uh, particular moment in time. But thank you again from the bottom of my heart, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all again next time. Take care.